0: Listener Production.
1: This episode of the Future Women Leadership Series contains descriptions of domestic violence and mental health issues. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. One of the ways we do this is through live events, like the Leadership Summit we held in March this year. There is an incredible atmosphere when you're in a room of inspiring women especially when they're there sharing their stories and leadership experience. In this episode, I'm bringing you one of the highlights of the summit. The first time I felt imposter syndrome was when I moved from television to newspapers. I'd never heard of imposter syndrome, but looking back, I had all the symptoms. Sleepless nights, fear of making errors, and fear of seeing them in print. But pushing myself out of my comfort zone turned out okay. So... How do you make the transition without feeling a crippling sense of self-doubt? You can find a way through. In this episode, Future Women's Jamila Rizvi is hosting a panel discussion on how to conquer imposter syndrome with young high-flying Australian diplomat Emily Hill, best-selling author and columnist Nikki Gammel, founder and CEO of Key Noteworthy, Cathy New, and former national soccer star Sarah Walsh. This event was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Here's Jamila.
2: Sarah, I might start with you. We're talking about imposter syndrome this morning and you've got quite the resume. When you moved off the field and into the governance space, did you experience imposter syndrome?
3: Yeah, I did. I played for the Matildas for, you know, over 10 years. Um, and thinking about my experience there, it's a the self-doubt that creeps in. I think that, um, you know, even my last match for the Matildas, I still didn't feel like I belonged. I will most definitely say the transition into business and the roles that I've had at Football Australia, it was, uh, it was very difficult. But um, look, I think that once I really understood uh, my self-worth and, and my capability, in business, I really am able to reflect and be quite thankful for all the leadership skills that I was able to accumulate for all that time playing at a very high level in a team environment. So it showed out in very different ways through those two parts of my career.
2: Thanks so much for sharing, Sarah. Nikki, I'm gonna continue with the confessions about imposter syndrome. Is this something you've experienced in your career?
4: Look, I, I've felt it all my life and I even felt it today walking into this room and seeing how gorgeously corporate everyone looked and thought, oh, my God, I look like I've just come from the garden. And, no, no, no. But, you look beautiful. Um, you know, I, I haven't quite got over how, how to cope in a post-COVID world in a way, how to talk to people, all the rest of it. I think uh, imposter syndrome is gendered hugely. I don't think it's a surprise that it was a term that was developed in the 1970s by two female US psychologists, basically, um, and yes, men, of course, can feel imposter syndrome too, but I feel like it particularly burdens us as women. It silences us, it makes us meek, it holds us back. It's basically that thing of, we may be really capable. These women were specifically saying, in terms of academics, really bright people who were saying, oh my God, I've fooled everyone here. I'm not really bright, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve to be on this platform.
2: Thank you, Nikki. Emily, if I can turn to you for a moment, I suspect that it's not just women as a group who experience imposter syndrome. I think it tends to be an experience of a lot of us who are minorities or in other ways disadvantaged in a room. Do you experience imposter syndrome? I'm feeling like I'm asking everyone to come out to me. Confession
0: time. Uh, Yes, certainly I have uh, reflected on many instances when uh, this has come to the fore and whether or not I knew what it was at the time, particularly being an Aboriginal woman, there have been certainly times where I have achieved a promotion and thought, well, they only gave it to me because I'm Aboriginal and I can tick that box. And that was really difficult for me to reflect on because when I was thinking about the achievements and, and the things that I'd done to set myself up to succeed in that promotion, they were all good things, but I couldn't recognise that, and I always put it onto other people's support um, for me, or you know the fact that there was an affirmative measure that enabled me to you know get a foot in the door, or whatever it was. You know, I've been having these feelings since I was you know in high school, basically when I had a scholarship through the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation, and I it never really goes away. Uh, I think I've just certainly understood how I can identify it, and that only comes obviously with. Uh, Well, it can come with experience and with time. I've got a young Aboriginal woman in my team at the moment and she came into my office the other day and she said, I really want to go overseas on a posting, but I know I'm going to fail. And that was really eye-opening for me because I could see so much of myself in her. And, you know, I completely was inappropriate and oversharing all of the experiences and everything I thought and, you know, blah, 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 and basically trapped her in my office for an hour. But it was a really great opportunity for me to be able to... Share some of the things and some of the strategies that you identify. You know, having been through this experience multiple times, and I mean, hopefully she can reflect on on that as she moves forward in her career. And we'll keep you posted.
2: <laughs> Please do, Kathy. It's your turn. You're the lucky last. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about your experiences, or not, of imposter syndrome.
5: So I didn't have the most uh, easiest childhood. So I grew up with a lot of domestic violence at home, I uh, used to see my dad beat my mom up almost every day. And um, I say that this is one of my favourite, but not really favourite topics because I'm at that stage now where I can comfortably talk about it. So I think um, just with my father's actions, it's made me feel like I was worthless. And uh, just growing up, everything was compared. So. I remember, um, so my cousins are just a a couple of, uh, the age gap is just a few months apart. And I remember relatives would just line us up and just compare the way we looked. So it was just like, not only were my grades compared, also beauty standards and the degree of whiteness. So I was not encouraged to play sport so that I wouldn't get tanned. Because being tanned is associated with, um, you know, sort of lower socioeconomic, status that sort of thing so yeah so then um, you know compounded with um, PTSD and um, depression and anxiety it spiraled into my relationships and uh, career and all of that and I didn't really understand why I was feeling like oh shit I can't do this even though I knew like deep down inside I could do it because I had fantastic grades at school but I never really believed in that And um, still to this day, um, when people compliment me on anything, I just cringe. (laughs) But now I've learnt to gracefully say thank you instead of just trying to make excuses. So yeah, that's my experience of imposter syndrome.
2: I'm gonna stay with you if that's okay, Cathy. You and I are both from culturally diverse backgrounds and there is some talk increasingly in Australian business circles about the bamboo ceiling as well as what we call the glass ceiling. Can you tell us a little bit about that and whether or not that's something you feel like you've hit?
5: Yeah, so the bamboo ceiling is basically the glass ceiling but just, you know, compounded by simply being Asian. And I studied so hard at school, I got amazing grades, Um, I can now (laughs) finally admit that but back then I was just like, oh my gosh, A minus is like, you're dead. (laughs) Yeah, so I just remember and this is just the bamboo ceiling, like I did advanced English at school and I I did so well but I begged my teacher to put me into the standard class because I said, I do not belong here because I was the only Asian in the class. I said, I do not belong here, put me down in the other class where I belong. She's like, what are you talking about? And she just kind of shook that out of me. So uh, yeah, it's, it's real, the bamboo ceiling is real.
2: Thank you for sharing that with us, Kathy. I want to turn back to you, Sarah. You work in the women's part of football, but football and sport as an industry is pretty blokey. It's very much male dominated. And when it comes to hierarchies and the attention we pay to various sports, certainly men's sport has had the limelight for a lot longer. Is imposter syndrome perhaps more prevalent women in those male-dominated industries, do you think it's more likely to come about when you're surrounded by blokes, particularly at the top?
3: Yeah, I do. I think um, you're right, firstly, that a large majority of the spaces that I work in, I find myself either the only woman or with a couple of women. So I think my playing background has prepared me with the resilience to be very comfortable with that. We're talking about building a legacy for the Women's World Cup at the moment, and one of the key pillars is around getting more women in the game. I'm very aware that most women haven't had the experience that I've had. So when I'm thinking about all these things, um, I think more often than not, women are going to find themselves in situations where the confidence is going to be rocked. I think that's probably what's playing out here. Um, I look around in these meetings full of men, and it is getting better in Australia. I think society and corporates have really shifted the dial. There's more women, particularly in our office, but I, I think that there's two things. It's about um, removing these situations where women um, you know, are being asked questions or representing their gender in a room, right? That's a heavy burden to carry and I do that a lot. But not every woman wants to uh, step into environments like that because, you know, in the corporate world, that's, it's progressed way, way beyond where sport has. I think the second part to this is, you know, how open is our society to having men be vulnerable to talk about these discussions? I'm, I've only ever had these discussions with women. So I think that, you know, there might be two parts to that. I'm sure there's a lot of men that aren't comfortable in certain situations and probably have experienced it. But I think more often than not, Uh, they're more comfortable in situations because they're not representing their gender.
2: Emily spoke a little bit about working with employees experiencing imposter syndrome. Is that something you've had to do? And what do you tell young women who work at Football Australia if they come to you and they seem to be exhibiting imposter syndrome?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that we've, we've done enough talking about it at work, particularly with Legacy and the Women's World Cup. And I mean, we have the Matildas, so they are actually the forward-facing brand of our game right now. Everybody loves them. So I think that the women in our organisation are naturally building confidence from those discussions. Um, They're not the last thing that we talk about in meetings anymore. They're actually the first. And that's because of the societal shift and the excitement around them. So I think that it's made my job easier. Um, And I can just see I mean, have you met this next generation of women? I gained so much energy and confidence from this group. I mean, I could rattle off all the names, but uh, that's what the women are like in our office. So, you know, I, I see them stand up and trial things and um, they've just, you know, they, I'm sure they've got imposter syndrome, but I think it's about creating the environment for them to, to feel like they can be
2: empowered. Nikki, imposter syndrome is often discussed concurrently with perfectionism and super high achievers. We talked about the number of books you've written, but I think authors generally tend to be very much perfectionists. We tend to be slow to write, and then when we do write, we don't think it's good enough, and then we get 10 years over our deadline very quickly. Um, Not so much you, but me. Can you talk to me about perfectionism, and when you talk to colleagues in the writing world, whether or not that seems to correlate with imposter syndrome?
4: Yeah, I call it the curse of perfectionism. I think it's such an awful syndrome and I feel like it's affecting our young women now even more and it's crippling them. It's crippling them with anxiety. I think it's good to learn failure and certainly, in, you know, in your environment you would be learning failure all the time. I find for me as a writer, I've had failure my whole life. I still get rejected. I I had a manuscript rejected about three months ago that I'd spent the whole of lockdown writing. And you've just got to pick yourself up and keep on going. And I think looking at our young women today, particularly in all female schools, I think there needs to be more in those schools about overcoming perfectionism. It's about learning to
1: fail and seeing that as a lesson. Hi, Helen here again. I just want to jump in and say it's actually not surprising to hear almost everyone suffers from self-doubt. If you are doing something new that stretches you, it almost makes sense. But it's really helpful to be able to recognise it for what it is and know you are not alone. Look around the workplace. Most people feel the same. Now that we've heard our panel share their own experiences with imposter syndrome, let's hear about how they recognised and fought those feelings of disbelief in their own abilities as they share some tips that might help you tackle your own feelings of imposter syndrome. Back to Jamila.
2: Nikki, I have only ever read glowing reviews of your work. However, I know as a fellow author that sometimes you get criticism in the reviews, even if it's one line in 800 words of nice things, and you then... I'm talking for myself here, it's a bit of a therapy session. You then sit there repeating that line to yourself every day for weeks and authors certainly go through it but we all do, we all receive criticism at work sometimes and even if we've had glowing feedback for weeks and months, we really stew on the criticism. How do you push past that and try to make sure that you focus on the positives and avoid that kind of negativity bias that a lot of us experience? See, when you say I've only read glowing
4: reviews, I'm thinking, which one? (laughs) Because all I I hear in my head is the negativity, the negativity. And I get it every week from the column that I do, particularly um, in the comments. I mean, female commentators disproportionately, we get the hate. And my strategy for dealing with that, I do not engage I do not engage with the good stuff. I do not engage with the bad stuff. I have an email address under my column. I can tell within the first three words the tone of the email and I will not go further than those three words. And and usually it's because they don't even call me by my name, they just launch straight into it. So it's just like, no, I don't delete it in case the police have to get involved in the future seriously. But I I think for me, it's about distilling my life, overcoming imposter syndrome, overcoming the scourge of perfectionism is about surrounding myself with, I'd say it's heart lifters rather than heart sinkers. And, you know, for me now in the public sphere, I often feel like the haters, they just want us silenced. And so I'm not going to meek in my voice. I'm not going to stop asking the difficult questions. But I need to do it in a headspace where it's not crippling me mentally. So that is why I've developed a coping strategy of distillation where I just do not engage. And also I think for me it's a thing of I have stopped comparing myself to other people, to other writers, to the success of other writers, to people who I think are doing better than me and why aren't I doing as well as them. That also can be crippling and can result in kind of a real sourness of spirit. I've let that all go, I'm on my own individual journey as we all are and we have to kind of escape the tyranny of comparison with others.
2: The tyranny of comparison, Emily, in the public service, often women come into the public service and certainly in the diplomatic corps, you're the best of the best and we come in in waves and I think we have a tendency to compare ourselves to people who are like us. Right? rather than comparing ourselves to the group, we focus in on one or two people. How do we move past that comparison, which as Nikki said, can get quite ugly in your own head and move to more of a comradeship space where we say there's a lot of space for us all to succeed and help one another move up?
0: Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's a really hard question because often people may come to those kinds of groupings. I joined in a graduate intake, there was 50 of us. It was, you know, like a, uh, pool of comparison and who's doing what and you know, who got this and who got that. Even at that time, I I felt like it's just not worth spending the energy on that. But unfortunately, sometimes people can suck you back in and it's really hard to resist, you know, when you're having a coffee with a friend and you think, oh, what about that person? Like, did you see that she got that job or what about him? He got that. So I think having that integrity in yourself and, and really understanding what it is that you hold important to yourself is really important in terms of trying not to be dragged into that. And it's really hard because, you know, um, we spoke before about perfectionism. Everyone wants to be the best that they can be and you want to do a good job. You want to care, but, you know, you really should compare yourself against your former self. And I think vulnerability is one of the key things that I was reflecting on in preparing for this panel is how can we be vulnerable enough to recognise that we have these insecurities and yet resilient enough to want to address them, but not because you feel like you need to from an external factor, but because you wanna to strive to be a better person. You're vulnerable enough to recognize that and you wanna build on that. I think one of the best comparisons you can make is, you know, looking back at your past self, how can you become a better future self?
2: thank you for that. I think there's a lot for us to take away in those comments. Can I ask Emily, I think imposter syndrome is often about the conversation we have in our heads, right? We're talking ourselves off the ledge or we're talking back to ourselves and trying to persuade ourselves to have a go at something. What are some of the things you say to yourself when self-doubt comes into play and how do you push back against that sense that you're not there based on your talent?
0: Yeah, that's a big question. I'm sure everyone here has little tips and tricks to share. Um, I often find actually it's not necessarily talking, but it's breathing, you know, taking a deep breath and, and, you know, more recently I've been doing a lot of mindfulness and things like that, you know, disconnecting yourself from the thoughts, from the feelings that you might be having through breath, I've found to be particularly helpful. There's also things that, Sounds superficial, but actually give me quite a lot of internal strength. So, you know, often if I'm going to a really important meeting at work, I always put on my glasses, um, which are a bit of a shield, but they just help me to, you know, put on that physical barrier between myself and the situation. And it allows me to think, you know, you got this. Yeah, it it is uh, semi trivial, but if that stuff's going to help, then why not? Um, You know, I was speaking with a friend last night telling her about this panel and and she was saying, fake it till you feel it. And I was kind of like, oh, I like, I haven't really heard that take on it. You know, normally one of my catchphrases is fake it till you make it, but now I'm kind of like, well, oh, should I say that now? Like, is that just reinforcing imposter syndrome and that deficit mentality? But she was saying, no, it's fake it till you feel it because, you know, she was saying, I know that I can do the job, but I just need to fake the confidence. I need to fake that until I feel the confidence. So whatever it is that makes you feel more confident, putting on glasses or, you know, power dressing, uh, attacking that negative thought in your head, breathing, you know, those kinds of things can really help you to just take a step back and say, you know what, I got this.
2: Kathy, can I turn to you again? Any tips for overcoming imposter syndrome? Uh,
5: Phone a friend. (laughs) And just like Emily, you breathe as well. So I try to breathe a bit more. Um, just take that moment to sense check, kind of review my thoughts, um, any sort of self-limiting beliefs and and just try to quieten it down. I don't think I could ever get rid of it because I grew up with it. You know, I grew up with everyone telling me I couldn't do this and that, but now I I pick and choose the voices that I want to listen to. And as I get older, I want to listen to my own voice more, as long as it is positive, encouraging, and kind and forgiving.
2: I love that use of the word kind because I you know, I often think about the fact that I will say things to myself inside my own head that I would never say to anyone else. I'm more cruel to myself internally than I would ever be to anyone else I had ever met. Um, Sarah, I'd like to come back to you for a moment and I was hoping we could take you back to your playing career because imposter syndrome is very much... It was a long time ago. You're like, no, no don't. It's very much linked to confidence and you grew up, playing where the skill or the ability or how good someone was at their job was really clear, right? There was no sense of being able to hide. You can't hide it when you're out on the field. So how would players pick themselves up, whether it was you or your contemporaries, if something didn't go well, if they felt like they'd let the team down?
3: It's an interesting question. I really can't answer that for all of my teammates because we're all so very different. The way that I did it, if I could do it again, I'd probably do it differently. I think that you can do it without all the anxiety that you carry. Well, I wouldn't have called it anxiety at the time. I would have called it adrenaline. Is the thing that um, that actually makes you successful in that place because you'll do extra training. You'll get to training early. Um, But for me, it was definitely, um, after reading about imposter syndrome, one of the, the key things that I really related to was wanting to be the best. That gets you up every single morning. For 10 years, it got me up. And it's the thing that drives you to be better. And I think that, um, you know, when you you know you either don't score a goal or you had a bad game. I think that um, a lot of the skills we talked about here today. Mine was being able to um, compartmentalise, which is actually not a great skill for your personal life, to be honest. So, <laughs> post uh, football, I really had to unpack that. But. I would very simply, if you're going through a breakup or there's been a death, you actually just have to turn on. You know, I remember being at a major tournament and there was a death in my family and you literally just have to pretend it didn't happen. Um, so that switch on, switch off is very, very useful when you need to turn it on. You know, as I said, that I, I've done a lot of work post my career to make sure that I'm not like that in my personal life because you should be able to feel and you should be vulnerable. That's unraveled in my work life where being nervous before an event or, you know, I think they're all really healthy feelings as long as you're able to make sure that they don't get in the way of your work. So I, I am able to switch on and off, um, but it's a skill that I think I learned because you, you simply just have to perform.
2: I really like that reminder that that nervousness or anxious feeling before you have to perform or you have to do a job, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's because you want to do a good job.
3: Yeah, and um, you care.
2: Yeah, and you care about what you're doing. Um, and that's, you know, that's excellent. We want more of that, not less of it. And I wanted to add something to what Sarah just said before we wrap, which is if you're an elite sports person and your body is necessary for you to play, you can't play when your body's not going to let you. And I think the same applies to your mental health as much as it does to your physical health, folks. If you need to bench yourself for your mental well-being for a while, do it. Take it as seriously as if you had a brain tumour or a heart attack or a broken leg, it matters. And if you need to bench yourself for your mental health, for that preparation to give yourself a few days, a few weeks, whatever it might be. We need to make that normal and acceptable in workplaces. Um, so I say that to a lot of you who are employers as well. Please make sure that that is something that is accepted and acknowledged in your teams. Can you please join me everyone in giving an enormous round of applause to our first panel of the day, to Sarah Walsh, to Nikki Gemmel, to Cathy and to Emily Hill.
1: And remember that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.